The third rail on a subway line is the rail you would never want to touch. The third rail is where the high voltage is found that powers the train from one point to another. And if you ever somehow fall onto a subway track, you should take great care to avoid the third rail, for to touch it is to be electrocuted. In politics, the issue of social security has often been referred to as the third rail of politics. It is an issue that has historically been so divisive, with so many passionate feelings surrounding it, that it is said that to even speak on it publicly presents a great danger to the issue, to the success of a, of a candidate. So those seeking office have often been warned to avoid the third rail altogether, to not even talk about Social Security, because if they do, it could electrocute their campaign. Well, expositional preaching forces pastors to speak on all of the third rails of the Christian life. Preaching verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, and book by book forces the expositor to address topics that are very hard, often divisive, and dangerous if not approached with great care. And we have one of those passages today. Now, I am aware of how the topic of divorce and remarriage is a sensitive one to many who are either in or around our congregation. So I want to display as much gospel balance as Scripture allows here. I want to state what is true. I want to exhort us to follow God's word. And I want to implore us to run to the grace of Christ for both strength and forgiveness. So I preach to you today as a pastor who has, under obligation from God, who has the responsibility to point you to the scriptures and say, thus saith the Lord. And I preach to you today as a pastor who must also point you to the scriptures and declare the gospel of Jesus is our refuge. So today we consider Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about divorce and remarriage and adultery. Now if you recall the last several messages in this book, Jesus has been exhorting his disciples, the people who were listening to him up on that Galilean hillside, to take a radical approach to life with him. He is demanding a truly radical approach to their lives. He has told them that they should actually consider themselves blessed if they are poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and even if they are persecuted. He has told them that they are to stand out as a salty, radiant witness for him by their distinction of life before the rest of this world. He has also told them that he, Jesus himself, has fulfilled the law and the prophets and that they are now to find their understanding of all of God's word in him. 
And that finding everything in him is the path that will actually enable them to have a righteousness before God that exceeds that even of the scribes and the Pharisees. Furthermore, as we have seen over the last couple of weeks, Jesus has radically commanded them to see God's commands against murder and adultery as heart issues. That they are to equate murder with anger and adultery with lust. And in doing so, he tells them that they are to get radical in their efforts to overcome anger and lust. So, it's not surprising that in our text, verses 31 and 32, that Jesus again says something radical while relating far-reaching expectations upon his disciples. In a world that had so goofed up marriage, much like our world today has, They are exhorted here to see and to practice the covenant of marriage as God originally intended it. And this exhortation, of course, connects right to us in our day. According to this passage, Jesus wants us to have a radical conviction about the sanctity of marriage. And it is a conviction that will, if we have it, it will stand out in our world today like a glittering diamond on a gravel road. It is just going to look different. And to have this conviction, we must see several realities from our text. First of all, from our text, we must understand why the marriage covenant is so significant to God. Now, this significance is realized, first of all, by how Jesus warned us about lust. There is a tight connection between verses 31 and 32 with last week's text that Manolan just read, verses 27 to 30. Now, the ESV doesn't reveal this all that well, but in the Greek, in the original language, verse 31 includes, at the beginning, a connecting word to the passage before it, a connecting word that would normally be translated as and. So verse 31 could very easily be translated, and it was also said, connecting verse 31 back into the topic he just finished talking about in verses 27 to 30. So Jesus, I think, is still talking about adultery, but now he's shifting gears a little bit and is addressing adultery in a different direction. Notice verse 28 from last week. But I say to you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as we saw, Jesus revealed that our ultimate problem is not merely the outward action of adultery, but the underlying lust of heart that is behind it. And he tells his disciples of all ages, even today, to take this concern seriously by fighting it radically. Tear out your eye, cut off your hand, he says metaphorically referring to the radical action that we would take to guard ourselves against lustful temptations in our lives. Notice also verse 32. He says, But I say that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus relates here, that the breaking up of a marriage leads to the breaking of the law through the commission of adultery. So Jesus sees the relationship between men and women, married and unmarried, as a very serious relationship. 
He is not beating around the bush with us. He is providing a clear warning that we should see God's good design and honor it just as he intended it. One man in faithful union with one woman with eyes only for each other until death do they part. Now, I think it is important for us to see that God has always, always taken the sanctity of marriage seriously because he designed it to carry with it some serious significance. He made it to have meaning and to do this, to help you see this, I want us to scan some important texts from the beginning of the Bible until the very end of the Bible that relates God's good intention behind human marriage. And this will help us to understand why Jesus is so serious about marriage and divorce here in Matthew chapter 5. So first of all, listen. We're going to look at some passages here in a moment. But first of all, I want you to listen to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, and what God said to the man Adam. Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24. Then the man, Adam, said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, God's initial design at creation is for one man and one woman to leave their childhood homes of mom and dad and to hold fast to each other, becoming one flesh. God has ordained this union. He has given blessing to this union. And this union, my friends, has led to human flourishing and societal strength ever since the beginning when it has been respected rightly. It has caused civilization to grow. It has caused families to be well-structured. It has caused children to be raised in health. It has been a good gift that God has given. Never Never let our culture tell you that God's design for marriage is a bad thing. God's design for marriage is the healthy, the good thing. It is a gift from Him. But it also points forward to an even greater meaning. Marriage points us forward to an even greater meaning because God will use the institution of marriage that he started back here in Genesis 2 as a stunning picture of his relationship with his special elect people. Like he does with a lot of stuff, he uses marriage as a very important picture. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. It's going to be page 657 in your pew Bible if you're using one. Ezekiel 16 or page 657 in your pew Bible. Ezekiel 16, and look with me, beginning at verse 8. Ezekiel 16, verse 8, page 657 in the pew Bible. This is what's written in the prophet. God is speaking, and it says, When I passed by you again and saw you, Behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, 
and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But... You trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver which I had given you and made for yourself images of men, with them you played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? Now notice verse 32. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. God took Israel from this terrible state, this lost place, and he made them his gorgeous bride. He loved her. He adorned her. He committed himself to her. But his bride was unfaithful to him. His, his bride was an adulterous wife. The brokenness that this adultery would bring to any human marriage pictures the brokenness in the hearts of God's people as they were unfaithful to him through their sin. So already, we begin to see that God is using that wonderful picture of human marriage, that institution of goodness for the flourishing of mankind, to be a picture of his love for the people whom he has selected to be his. But they rebelled. But listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says. Jeremiah the Lord speaks through him in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, God's people broke their covenant with God, though he was their husband, spiritually speaking. But in love and in grace, he promised to make a new covenant where his law would be written on his people's hearts, and the result will be that he will be their God and they will be his people. In other words, the marriage will be restored and again enjoyed by God and his people. This is his promise. And this is the very promise he fulfills in Christ that we enjoy today if we have him. In fact, turn over with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 5, it's page 919 if you're using the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22 page 919 in the Pew Bible. Ephesians 5, verse 22, the Apostle Paul, a follower of Christ, writing to this church in the city of Ephesus, writes to them these words, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see that bride language about Christ and his church here? And look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis chapter 2 right there. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. My friends, the marriage relationship is a picture of the spiritual marriage between Jesus and his church, the true Israel of God. Husbands are the head of their wives, even as Christ is the head and Savior of his church. Husbands are to love their wives, even as Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her. The mystery of the marital union declared back in chapter 2 is now revealed here. It refers, it is meant all along to mean Christ and his bride, Christ and his church. 
Here, thousands of years after Genesis was written, we finally get it summed up all tight in a nice little bow that when God says, one man, one woman, one flesh, holding fast together, what he's trying to show is, my son's going to come and he's going to purchase for me a bride and she's going to be mine forever. It's a picture. And notice how the Bible ends. Just listen. Listen to Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There will be great cause for rejoicing in heaven on Christ's coming day, for the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to take place. And at that celebration, in glory, the reason for such exaltation will be the bride who has made herself ready for the Lamb, King Jesus. So my dear friends, God has always taken the sanctity of marriage seriously because he designed it to carry some serious, weighty, profound significance. It signifies his relationship with his elect people, the believers who looked in faith upon the Lamb, the church. I think that we have to understand this if we're going to hold marriage in the high esteem that God holds it. Marriage means something far more than romance. Marriage means something far more than affectionate emotions. Marriage means something far more than companionship. Marriage means something far more than the experiences of our short, earthly lives. Because marriage has great meaning about Jesus and his gospel and his people, and it matters for eternity. So we must not take this lightly, as Jesus did not take this lightly. It was significant to Christ, and it must be significant to Christians. Secondly today, we must see that the breaking of the marriage covenant is sin against God. Bad teaching had been going around in Jesus' day as we read Matthew chapter 5. Bad teaching. In verse 31 of Matthew 5, Jesus references the Jewish understanding regarding divorce as it was found in the law, particularly at Deuteronomy chapter 24. And this is what the law of Moses said in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, the text that the Pharisees and the scribes and everyone in that day took their understanding of marriage and divorce from. It says in Deuteronomy 24 that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then... She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. Remember that word. Because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce 
and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So, in the law, it says that if a man finds indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce, if she goes off and marries someone else and gets divorced a second time, she's not supposed to come back and marry the first husband. Because that's, that's breaking the picture that God has been making twice over. It's an abomination, he says. It's, it's not to be done. A certificate of divorce was really a protection for the wife. That's why it was handed to her. When her husband chose to divorce her, the law demanded that she be given a certificate of divorce that prevented that husband from later stating, she's still my wife. He couldn't do that because she would then have the certificate that would prove the matter against him. So she would then be free to marry again, and she had the documentation to prove her right. However, only men could write a certificate of divorce according to the Jewish culture of that day, and therefore divorce was generally enacted by the husband alone unless the woman went through a long process of approaching the local council and petitioning them directly. So in the law of Moses, the door was opened that allowed for divorce. He doesn't say you can go ahead and divorce people, but but the, the door is opened. But Christ is going to later on in this gospel, and we're going to talk more about this when we get there, but he's going to later on in this gospel tell us more about this and relate to us the reason why Moses allowed this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, he said to them, to the religious leaders of his day, Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus says the divorce has been allowed, it's creeped in, and it's there because you've got hard hearts. But if you go back to the beginning where God says, hold fast, one flesh, it's not there. Jesus is telling them that you have taken this to a place you never should have taken it to. He's correcting them there. We're going to get to that. Well, in Jesus' day, as he was speaking on that hillside, There were really two prominent views about divorce that were being held between two different theological schools or theological camps. The school of Shammai took the strongest line regarding divorce by stating that the term found some indecency in her, in Deuteronomy 24, refers to a serious or blatant indecency, though that decency was never really clearly defined and could still be interpreted in a lot of different ways. But the school of Hillel, on the other hand, extended the meaning of found some indecency in her to all kinds of offenses, whether those offenses be real or imagined offenses. 
This allowance for divorce by this school sometimes included things like an improperly cooked meal or a husband lustfully finding a more attractive woman. As you might imagine, the door was opened up in that day for all kinds of abuse when it came to marriage and divorce. Well, Jesus authoritatively declared the reality behind divorce. He says in verse 32, but I say. This is the third week in a row I'm going to say that in the Greek, that word I is there twice. It's in the verb and it's also stated on its own, which means there's emphasis there. When he says, but I say, what you could really have it say is, but I say. There's authority here. He's making a point. But I say, with all of his authority, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever divorces, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let's, let's break that apart. First of all, he seems to be primarily addressing husbands here. Notice, he says, everyone who divorces his wife and whoever marries a divorced woman. But this does not negate the matter of when the tables are turned. If the woman divorced the husband and then she went to marry another man. Because in, in Mark 10, verses 11 and 12, it says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So it goes both ways. I think Jesus is simply showing here where the primary responsibility falls for marital stability. It falls with the husbands. Second, Jesus declares that to divorce one's life, to divorce one's wife leads to adultery. Now, as we have seen, God designed marriage to be the lifelong union between one man and one woman. Now, we'll consider the exceptional language here in just a moment that Jesus uses. But this, meant, this was meant that to break the union and to enter another sexual relationship or to get remarried while that first spouse was still living was to break God's holy law. It is to commit adultery. Jesus is insisting to his disciples that marriage must be appreciated and elevated with all of the significance that God has given to it from the very beginning until the end. It was never to be ended in a hasty, capricious, or selfish way. Rather, it was to be faithfully lived out until death do us part. These are the words of Christ. Third, Jesus says that the divorce makes her commit adultery. Well, in what sense does the action of divorce by the husband make the woman who was his wife then commit adultery? Well, in that day, if a woman was divorced, she would not have had much of any other means of support. Jobs were not all that available to women, and if her father was dead and she had no other family to provide for her, she would be in a pretty tough place. And the only alternative to her would be to find another husband as fast as possible. So if she was divorced by her husband, she would feel compelled to find another, thus committing adultery. So the breaking of the marriage covenant is, according to Jesus, sin against God. So I think we have to say a couple of things. Number one, don't look upon divorce 
the way our culture looks upon divorce. We live in a day and age where it used to be taboo, probably a lot of shame, unfortunately, involved in it, but now it's become something so permissive and so regular that no one really thinks twice about it. Not to mention the fact that the very idea of one man and one woman has been altered in a way that God has not designed. Well, we are not to look upon divorce the way our culture does. We're to look upon it with the radical vantage point. Radical not because it's crazy or wrong, but radical because the most of our world has rejected it. And to them, when they see marriage being honored in a godly way, that seems crazy to them. So radical from the perspective of others, not radical to God. Don't look upon it the way our culture does, but out of love for Christ, value the commitment of marriage. See it and appreciate it the way that God does. Third this morning, we must realize that there may be exceptions. We must realize that there may be exceptions. Notice what Jesus says, verse 32. He says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. The Greek word underlying sexual immorality is the word porneia, which generally refers to various sins of a sexual nature. It has a broad usage in the New Testament, but in this context, it appears to refer to adulterous actions committed against one's spouse. That's not its normal usage, but there are some instances where it's used that way. Jesus, at face value, appears to be allowing for divorce, though not encouraging it, if there is sexual immorality in the marriage. Though I think the God-ordained meaning of marriage should compel us to seek reconciliation, even in these cases, Jesus seems to be allowing for divorce if the one-flesh union between the man and the woman has been defiled through sexual immorality. He seems to be allowing this. No doubt such defilement ruins trust and can even destroy the relationship, as I mentioned last week. Now, there's one problem with this. There's one problem here with what Jesus says. This exception found here in Matthew's gospel is not included in either Mark or Luke's relating of this teaching by Jesus. Mark, chapter 10, says this, And he, Jesus, said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There's no mention of an exception in Mark. In Luke chapter 16, verse 18, we see it again. Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Again, no mention of an exception. There is no exception clause in either of these Gospels, the other two that speak on this issue, and they relate, as they relate, Christ's teaching on divorce. So why, we have to ask. Why does Matthew include this exception, but the other Gospel writers don't? Well, as I see it, there are two possible ways to understand this. And the first way to understand this, the first view is called the betrothal view. It's the view that I long held. This view connects us back to Joseph and Mary in Matthew chapter 1. This view 
states that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, in order to clear up any confusion in his readers' minds as they're walking through this text, includes these words of exception, except on the ground of sexual immorality, as sort of a parenthetical clarification in order to explain that Jesus' words did not go against his stepfather Joseph's intention when he was considering divorce to Mary back in Matthew chapter 1. So if that's how it reads, it would read something like this. Everyone who divorces his wife, and then in parentheses, except on the ground of sexual immorality, and parentheses, makes her commit adultery. So that except on the ground of sexual immorality is Matthew's editorial addition to the words of Christ for clarification. If you recall back to chapter 1 in the birth narratives, Mary had conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit as a virgin, an incredible miracle, but can you imagine what that must have been like for everybody else? And Joseph, her betrothed, kind of like being engaged it was to be betrothed, not, your, not her full husband, but her betrothed who would become her full husband. There was no sexual union, but there was an agreement. There was a commitment to each other, though not full commitment yet. Well, Joseph, her betrothed, was greatly concerned that Mary had been unfaithful to him, that she had committed sexual immorality, a word that's often written as fornication, with someone else before they were even fully married. After all, what was Joseph to think? All of a sudden, Mary is betrothed is with child. But if you recall, he chose to do the loving thing. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Matthew's the only gospel that talks about this. So they say, He talks about it in chapter 5 with exception language because he's the only one to talk about Joseph's intention to divorce her in chapter 1. Instead of forcing Mary to face the ramifications of the law, Joseph decided to divorce her, to end the betrothal agreement and to move on. But as we have seen, God's angel intervened, Joseph was told the truth about the Savior, and he went on with the marriage, thank God. So the betrothal view sees the exception clause in Matthew chapter 5 where it says, except on the ground of sexual immorality, as Matthew the writer's attempt to avoid any confused accusations against Joseph. He wants to clear up any misunderstanding that Joseph would have been justified to, to divorce Mary since he was only betrothed to her and that he did nothing wrong in his original intention to end the betrothal. That's what the view takes, the view says. The second view is called, at least I call it, the exception view. After much prayerful reflection, this is actually now the view I hold, though I got to say, very cautiously. This view takes this text at face value that Jesus does provide a true exception here, though in no way an encouragement here. And that Matthew alone relates this exception because he, for whatever reason, decided to relate what was already understood implicitly by his first century audience. Mark and Luke didn't mention the exception because it was already implied by common understanding in that day, but Matthew mentioned it perhaps to simply clarify the matter. Though I once held the betrothal view and still see a ton of merit in it, 
The reason I now take this text at face value is because I think both Jesus and Matthew would have been clearer if their true intention was to refer to the betrothal of Joseph. I just, I don't think there's enough here to to point me back to Matthew 1. I don't think there's enough evidence here to justify this as a reference to Joseph's intention in chapter 1. But I gotta tell you, I may be wrong. This is a tough one. I changed my view this week. So let me say this. Good Bible teachers disagree on whether or not this passage allows for an exception. I could give you names of people who I think you would respect, who you have appreciated over the years, who hold one view or the other. Men who make wonderful cases. And so my appeal to that is, let us be gracious. You've got three elders in this church, and we've all had different exposure to divorce and remarriage and people we minister to. And we're going to come with maybe some different perspective on some things. Let us be gracious to each other and be gracious to us and how we seek to minister in this way because these are hard things. I wish it was a little more spelled out at times, but God in his wisdom knew best. He gave us exactly what we needed. But let us be gracious to each other where we're not certain. Another possible exception is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. I would invite you to turn there with me. It's page 898 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 7 we're going to look at verses 10 through 15. It's pages 898, page 898 in your pew Bible. See what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 15. He says this, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, there's a lot that could be said here, and we don't have the time to break this apart and to explain everything, but this perhaps, perhaps opens the door for a believing spouse to divorce an unbelieving spouse if the unbeliever abandons the marriage. To be honest, I'm still working on this one. And the reason given is because verse 15 says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Though this text is also debated, it may provide, it might provide, a second exception that allows for divorce and remarriage. This depends upon what Paul means by the brother or sister is not enslaved. But if it does allow for this, my friends, let me also state that a marriage should only happen between believer and believer. 
Because a few verses later in verse 39, Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So, if you know Christ, you're to seek a spouse who also knows Christ. There may be legitimate exceptions that allow for divorce, though I don't believe they encourage it. It's never a road that anyone is encouraged to go down. So let me give four pastoral encouragements based upon our text from Matthew chapter 5. Four pastoral encouragements. Number one, fully appreciate the beautiful meaning behind marriage. It stands for something far greater than you or your spouse or your potential spouse. It stands for the plan of God that has unfolded through Jesus Christ to purchase himself a people who would become his special bride. See it in those terms. When you're being nasty to her, when you're being rude to him, See it in terms of how God made a plan to purchase his people for himself through the shed blood of his son that he might have a bride. And then recognize, husbands, that you're to love her as Christ loved his church. And recognize, wives, that you're to support and follow him as the church is to follow Christ. Let the gospel message underline marriage. Be the heart and the soul and the source of joy in your marriage. And since it's ultimately about what Jesus has done for his people, let me say, my friends, look to him in faith. Marriage is the picture of Christ shedding his blood on the cross in payment for the sins of his people whom he loves, that they might be his special people, his bride. So all here today, let me tell you, Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, rose again three days later to purchase you that you might be forgiven of your sins and have fellowship with him for all of eternity. And the way that you receive this gift is to believe. I say, I believe it, Lord. I receive your gift. Turn away from your sins and receive Christ in faith. And then you're part of the bride. And he begins to go to work in you in good ways. Secondly, this morning, make wise marriage choices. Oh, look for true godliness in a future spouse. It is so hard to close our eyes while we search, but I gotta tell you, to young men and to young women and to old men and old women. If you're looking for a spouse, close your eyes while you're looking. Make secondary what is secondary. Beauty and intelligence and gifting, all of those need to be second. And godliness must be foremost. Because when you make that commitment before God, that is for life, my friends. It is not to be discarded. And with that, prayerfully evaluate a future spouse with the help of other mature believers. 
How many marriages has been wrecked because two people enter into it so carelessly, they've never gone or they've never respected the thoughts of other mature believers in their lives, and they end up with someone that they're not well suited for, and they have battle after battle after battle, or the marriage ends in disaster. Use the advantage of the local church to evaluate the guy or the gal that you're so high on. If you're high on the guy or the gal for the right reasons, the church is going to see that too. Third, value premarital biblical counseling. God has given you men and women in your life who are mature, that are fully capable of walking you through texts of Scripture and encouraging you with some really good books of the Bible to help you understand all of the intricacies of marriage and especially to simply help you prepare your heart before you enter into that lifelong covenant. Take that advantage. Third this morning, don't run to divorce when marriage becomes hard. God intends marriage to sanctify you. We've talked about that word. Sanctify, to make holy. God intends marriage to make you holy. He intends marriage to make you like his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, I had a professor in seminary who used to say that marriage was God's great hidden sanctifying tool in the Christian life. You don't know it till you're in it. And then when you're in it, you realize, oh, God's using this to really tell me all my flaws <laughs> and to point me in the direction I have to go. Because it's really hard to not be real with the person that you're with every single day. And they begin to see all the flaws. God uses it as a tool to sharpen you. And it doesn't feel good sometimes. It's hard sometimes. But it's God's way of helping you become like him. And furthermore, your testimony of Jesus Christ is on the line. Your testimony to your faithfulness to your spouse is a testimony to Christ's faithfulness to his church. And he wants you to take that serious. Fourth, only turn to divorce if Scripture allows, if you can, under conviction of Scripture, allows, and the marriage is truly beyond recovery. And let me first of all say, do not stay in a dangerous or abusive situation. Do not stay in a situation where you are in danger or you're being abused. The church has not done well at saying that statement. We must do better. Furthermore, we must be willing to help the gals especially that are in situations where it is dangerous and abusive. Priority number one, protect someone who is made in the image of God and get her out of that place where she's in danger. I think that's huge. And we better do a good job as a church in that area. And with that, though, honor God and his word above your circumstances. I, I get it. I've heard it all. I've only pastored for 12, 13 years. I've heard a lot in that time. I, I, I've, I've listened to a lot of crazy stories about what it's like in a marriage with someone. Let me tell you, Honor God above your circumstances. That doesn't mean it's going to get better. It doesn't mean she's going to change. It doesn't mean he's going to change. It doesn't mean it's going to end in reconciliation. But you have a responsibility for you before God. 
So make the decision that whatever comes, you're going to honor God's word above your circumstances. And with that, recognize the power. Paul just talked about this. Recognize the power of your faithfulness to your faithless spouse. The power that you have as one who faithfully trusts in Christ for all things to your spouse who trusts in Christ for nothing. See the value of that. There is something compelling about a changed life who lives with you and sleeps next to you. And then enlist the aid of elders. We want to be a help. We want to help you through those things. We're men. We're we're not always going to know exactly what to say or do, but we want to be able to help you. We want to be able to be there for you to enlist, to help you think through and work through those situations in a biblical way. Enlist the aid of people who want to prayerfully shepherd you with the word. And then finally, number five, if you have sinned with a divorce or remarriage, turn to Jesus and sin no more. There was a a fella who came to me for counseling several years ago, and this was one of those unique things where he had been married, and his current wife had been married before, and they had both been divorced. They found Christ. They found each other. They got married. And he came to me for counsel because his wife had been taught by the leadership of their church that her marriage was now vacant and void and shouldn't be considered as authentic and that she should no longer consider him to be her husband. He didn't take this view. He thought that was bad teaching. I agree with him. But it meant that she refused to share the room with him, the bedroom with him. She refused to accompany him to various places. They lived in the same home and they were still friendly but they didn't act like spouses. And this devastated this man. And my words to him were, have you repented over your past sins that caused your first marriage? And he says, oh, I so have. And I said, did you, and you've entered this marriage and you made a promise to her before God? He said, yeah. And she made a promise to you before God? And he said, yeah. I said, don't break what God has now made. Don't, don't sin twice. Repent and move forward in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's what I would say to anyone if you look back and you say, well, I blew it there. Is look to the grace of Christ and don't sin going forward in this area. Seek to honor him where you are now. Jesus can and will forgive you. And then Jesus will empower you and you can in his strength honor him right where you are now. So let me say, let us honor marriage in our church. Let us hate divorce, but perhaps recognize that there may be times when it's, when it's necessary. And then let us go forward as a people who prize the picture of marriage for what it is, a picture of that beautiful gospel that saves us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you for the chance to open your word in this hard text. Lord, I pray that there would be no confusion, that I was clear, but that if there are any questions, that they would be answered. I pray, Lord, that no one would come away here with a false guilt, but that, Lord, we would only come away from here, Lord, with a true understanding of what marriage and divorce are from your eyes, and that, Lord, we would seek to obey them and honor them as you intended. 
And that where we have gone wrong, Lord, we would look to your Son in faith. We would remember his work for us on the cross. And we would delight to be a part of his bride. I thank you for the blessing of this church. May you continue to bless Riverside, I pray. In Jesus' name.